Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's uh, Roxanne again this week. How are you? Uh, thanks for tuning in again. Uh, this week I have a very dear friend, uh, Sue Lindberner, uh, that's uh, come to join us today and talk a little bit about trauma. Hi, Sue. How are you today? I'm well. And we see Belle back there rolling around a little bit. <laughs> Hi, Belle. Um, so happy to see you as well. <laughs> she knows my voice. Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about uh, Sue's background, um, and then we're going to just kind of talk a little bit about um, her specialty, which is trauma. So as a clinical psychotherapist with 20 years in trauma and over 20 years experience in the field of psychotherapy, um, Sue helps clients gain insights into the challenges they face. Uh, so obstacles that may seem insurmountable, insurmountable can be overcome. Uh, by learning from their experiences and how it's impacted their life, they can identify tools and coping mechanisms that work for them. Uh, they can uh, l- learn to approach issues from a different perspective uh, and take action to address uh, the concerns that are keeping them back from leading a healthy, peaceful life. So, Sue, is there anything that uh, have, you haven't touched on on the bio that the listeners might be, you might want the listeners to know? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> This trauma we're talking, I think, where what my area focus would like to be for today, and I think trauma in general and how it impacts um, people. I, I think what I'm finding more um, coming into my private practice and when I was working at the sexual assault center are men who have experienced trauma, and just that's a little bit more of a silent impact, I think. So that's just what came to my mind. Just how much more. Um, I'm seeing that in my my private practice, men with trauma histories, and um, how yeah, I guess for for such a long time that's been a silence. Interesting. So let's let's um, let's kind of talk about for people that maybe I think this word or this definition of word of trauma gets thrown around a lot, and I want for us to kind of define it what that is, right? So I know we I always say small t trauma. Um, all the way up to big T trauma. Right. So on a continuum, right? A big right. Yeah. I was listening to Gabor Mateo. Um, I follow uh, Tommy Rosen. I think I talked about. It, does a lot of recovery, and it was an, an initially a recovery from you know our traditional addictions, but he's expanded it to recovery, really for so much of what we do in our life, right? You know, overeating, um, ways of thinking. Even he'll talk about. But he was doing an interview with Gabor Mate, um, reminded us, you know, trauma is not as much the actual event, it's the impact. So the fallout of that event, how it changes your sense of self, how it changes how you see the world, how it changes your sense of safety in the world. Really, yeah, and I, I think that's important to remember, really 
another one I think that we may have both learned was it's experiencing something that is beyond your ability to control or make sense of. It overwhelms your capacity to organize and cope. So when we think, I mean, as, as psychotherapists, we know that safety is key. And when, you know, when I think of safety, I think of kind of, I can, I can go out in the world. So if you think of a child, you know, with your girls and with, with RJ, you, you try to create a space as best as you can to say that, um, I always say you're perfect just the way you are. Developmentally, that's ideally what we want children to come into this world with, right? To believe that, you know, if I'm introvert or an extrovert, if I like piano or if I like dance or if I like, um, you know, mountain biking or um, musical instruments, it doesn't matter that being who I am is who I, I need to be in the world. And us as parents or primary caregivers, we kind of support that child in development. Would you agree of that kind of concept of, of what's... Well, I think that's what we try to do, but I think inadvertently, we don't always do that, right? Because we want our children maybe to have better lives than what we had, or maybe triggered by what they're doing, or if they're struggling with something. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, we can um, misdirect our, our support by... Yeah, our own anxiety kind of overriding just that ability to just accept that they're where they're at. I think in theory, we would all say we're going to support our children to be whoever they are. But I I think the practicality of that is that that's sometimes harder to do if you don't understand your child's choices or experiences or you don't agree with them. That's not what you want for your child. Um, Yeah, I had a conversation, you know, recently with somebody who shared that when their child first came out as being um, gay, you know, how devastating that was for them. Because in their mind, they wanted, they had a different experience for their children. Um, And so the initial reaction was not very supportive, right? Mm -hmm. There was a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of misunderstanding, confusion. And I don't think that means that the parents... You know, it's not about love all the time. It's also about our capacity to be present, to meet our child's needs and support them, whatever they're doing, which again, in theory, I think we would all agree with that the practicality of that is sometimes harder than other times. So we really do, I think, the best we can with what we have and what's in front of us. We try to be the best possible space for our kids, but I would say that most of us didn't grow up in ideal environments, but we cope accordingly and just try to do better with our children or, you know, so that we can give them something a little bit potentially better than what we had. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Let's talk about trauma, more um, traumatic events. And like we said, traumatic events are us as human beings, none of us are wired to deal with things outside of the ordinary. We kind of assume that in our day-to-day lives that things are going to just play out the way they need to. And then something traumatic happens and it disrupts the flow of, consistency that we expect in our lives. So when, when we talk about um, trauma and kind of the work that you've done, let's talk about, you talked about the symptoms. And I think that's really, really important um, for that we talk about because none of us are equipped um, as human beings, we develop um, symptoms to help us cope. So let's talk about some of the things that you've seen over your years of practice that of symptoms that kind of come from, from traumatic events. Um, well, you know, I mentioned drug and alcohol use, right, which is certainly a, a way to try to cope with overwhelming feelings of 
anger, confusion, hurt. So when I when I meet people in adulthood, so maybe you know um, I need to control, right? It is sometimes, and that can look like being very controlling in our own environments to the point of being abusive, um, controlling in regards to managing our anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen next to the point of becoming developing obsessive compulsive disorder to such an extreme attempt to try to control our environment. I think we see, you know, we talk about flashbacks, we talk about self-harm, we talk about irritability. So we often know there's a correlation you know, with earlier trauma and to depression and anxiety. But I think the, you know, the average person may not be able to correlate that back. So just this sense of being, you know, not feeling settled or not feeling um, in control or that, like you mentioned, that sense of feeling safe within ourselves, that I can manage what's happening. So even just really simply, I think things like depression and anxiety are often presented with often clients not understanding where that's come from. And if you kind of think about it in the world, Sue, right? Like lately, and I'm, you know, out there and, you know, in the world we tear, anxiety and depression is on the increase. Mental health is on the increase. So many things are on the increase. And so a significant percentage of that could, could be related to traumatic events, right? So we know that, like we said, the, the small T trauma could be something as difficult as I had a loss as a child to my parents separated all the way up to complex PCSD, which is something that I know um, you have specialty in, which is um, intense childhood neglect, uh, childhood sexual abuse, or just uh, sexual abuse or assault under the age of five, right? Um, when we kind of look out there, we don't know what's going on with the world in reference to why this increase is, but we, we can assume um, that a significant amount of that could be related to um, sexual abuse. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, the statistic that we use, right, is one in three women will have experienced sexual abuse and one in five men will have experienced sexual abuse. So I think there, it's much more profound than what I think the average person understands or wants to believe. Right, because that's kind of, I mean, you and I know it because we, we kind of have been in those worlds, right? Um, but the average person goes, what? What does that mean? You know, if there's three people in a room, it's more than likely one out of three of us as females or one out of five men. That's that's a significant amount. And I, and I think even before I started to begin doing some more intense trauma work as a therapist, I I was ignorant to that. It's it's very hard to believe. It's, it's a very, um, it's a tragic, truth to try to wrap your head around right and then we know if if i you know experience that level of trauma just what that's like for me um now raising my own children or engaging with co-workers you know it doesn't take away from my incredible capacity to to do my job well and to do aspects of my life very well but there's often a cost of that right that maybe is kept hidden from other people um, but maybe I have a, pros a profound, you know, level of anxiety where I am staying up late and I'm, I'm stretching, you know, burning the candle at both ends to try to stay on top of things and to, to maybe people please is a term we often use for trauma survivors, right? Trying to maintain some kind of control or safety and yeah. You know, it's interesting because I just watched um, Whitney Houston's um, bi biography and um, again, here's someone, 
you know, like you said, it's one out of three, one out of five in day-to-day living. But when I looked at her biography, she had obviously um, suffered from a lot of drug addiction, but they had talked about that she had been abused under the age of five by a family member, something that I did not know that was public. Unfortunately, it sometimes takes something like a high profile person like that, or kind of like what we're seeing with the Me Too movement for things to kind of start to dialogue out there about what things that you and I have known for, you know, years and years being in practice. Since the, um, since the Me Too movement, how have things been out there that you found in reference to survivors and survivors of, of, of sexual abuse? We call them survivors, people that have come forward and sought help. How are people accepting that um, heightened knowledge that it's actually aware in the world? Are people People, you know, I think in our community here in Niagara, I think there is, there, there certainly is more um, room for conversations. And I, I also think, you know, one, one thing that was noted was that at the, um, one of the centers that there was uh, an older population uh, coming in to, you know, there was language given to it. There was a sense of safety in, in regards to, um, yeah, what was happening, that there was a sense of being able to finally talk about this when maybe there hadn't been um, the context to talk about it previously. There weren't, we know for men that there haven't always been, you know, uh, places available to talk about things. And I think, yeah, you know, for women, I think there's, um, I I think sexual abuse in particular, it's such a, a specific trauma that unfortunately, I think there's also the possibility that misguided other health professionals or caring people don't always give the right information or have the understanding of the impact that that has on your, you know, such a deep rate, right? I I think, you know, that is, that is the ultimate violation, right? It's a betrayal of your violation of your, your, your thoughts, your body, your psyche, your spirit. Um, and whether it happens in childhood or as a, a single assault, I think it really disrupts somebody's sense of self and, and how they see the world. So I think with the Me Too, certainly more conversations. I think there's more awareness at different institutions and campuses and of, of having you know those conversations, but I... I think there's still a long way to go because I think for the average person, parent, um, it's something that we don't want to talk about. And you said something about healthcare professionals. Um, what kind of things have you seen or what, what should healthcare professionals and people that are listening, not just healthcare professionals, but I would think also people in companies or, or HR or, you know, things like just people managing other people. What kind of things should I think somebody is closing something, right? Your, your role is to listen. Um, and you may not have the capacity to, you know, and it's probably not appropriate for you to pursue it too far, but I think just, just really creating a safe place for the person to talk about what's going on. You don't have to be the judge and jury in that moment. You just need to have an open ear and really listening without and being mindful I always think of, of somebody who shared with me when they first went to tell their doctor, um, you know, finally after years, I, I think of, of wanting to say something 
the fact that the doctor, who, who did not have a lot of specific knowledge, but really listened, right? Mm -hmm. Really listened and then offered a resource. So to the local, you know, the appropriate local uh, treatment center and just, just listening, right? Being aware of your body language, um, not asking questions that, um, you know, could potentially sound like criticism. Why didn't you do something different? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you tell somebody? Mm -hmm. You know, those are things that I, I hope people have heard now enough in the media. We've talked about those things. You know, I think back to Gian Gomeshi, you know, we were talking about why survivors don't come forward. It's been a long time now. So I, I hope people understand. They may, they may not fully understand it, um, but how to just create a space where the person can tell what they need to say. Safely. So just being compassionate and kind. Because uh, oftentimes, I'm sure you've heard this about false memory, right? Um, I know as, as a psychotherapist, I've been asked about that. And I, you know, I think it just came up uh, the other day at a conversation that was you know, not a psychotherapy kind of uh, group of people, which is general people. And, and someone said to me, you know, like, what about those people that lie? And I, I, I shared with them, I said, you know, after Sue and I worked at a, uh, the Nye Region Sexual Assault Center for quite a lot of years, and I said, you know, when you see a woman or a man, and Sue and I also saw men, come through those doors and to be able to start to even connect with us about why they're there um, and tend to see us sometimes it would be years and, and relate their story. It was like literally um, like having root canal um, every 10 minutes, 60 minute hour. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then for people to perceive that someone would want to go on that experience is, you know, I said, I, could, I couldn't even, you know, perceive that that would happen. Yes, there are people that could be, you know, um, maladaptive with how they're coping with things that would throw off the issue. But generally, the, the people that we were seeing were devastatingly um, injured and, and not well and had every symptom, um, every medical symptom related to the trauma, you know, um, you know, suicidality, all those things. So that false memory syndrome um, is something that we know is an anomaly or very, very little, not something for people to be concerned about. If someone's coming forward, like Sue says, just be, just be a human being that says, I hear you. I don't know what to say right now. I wish I knew what to say, even if that's what you, all you can say is, and then to just help them find a resource um, that could help them. Even even just saying, I'm sorry, this happened. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said earlier. I think we, you know, we witnessed the incredible pain that people go through in in processing this impact is is it's very intense and it's very hard work. Absolutely. Having us been, you know, I think uh, been given the gift to be able to share that space with people, and I would say that, and I know you and I both have talked about it over the years, is that it's a privilege to be able to see that we could create a space that potentially could have people start to even experience trust potentially for the first time in their lives. So, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, um, men, because, you know, it's one thing for us to talk about females and, and that's, you know, we know that that has come along and it still is a long ways off, but I wanted um, to, for you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, this, 
the specialty that you've developed working with men and kind of what that space is like for men that have been abused and what it, what it takes for them to come forward or even to seek treatment. Right. And I just want to go back and just say in regards to when we think we may have an idea of what somebody looks like who has been sexually abused. And, and I think that's another myth that is perpetuated. I, um, yeah, they, they look just like you and I, right? From all walks of life and all, I think that's the other thing is that there's, there's, it just touches everybody, sexual abuse. So that's one thing I just wanted to reiterate. Um, in regards to the men, so part of um, my uh, professional work in regards to working with men has also been to, to run a, a survivor group for men. So I was able to help um, implement it, facilitate it. And I think my experience, one thing I always say about the men's group is that it's incredibly hard to get men to come to because of the level of stigma, shame, uh, fear of, of being vulnerable, what that's going to look like, exposed. Um, and inevitably, almost you know, every person every year um, rarely wants the group to end because there's often for the first time, you know, in, in the lives of these men, an ability to just be honest, to share, to be open, and to lose that, I think is hard sometimes when group comes to, to an end. And again, you know, it's a cross-section of men, from men that have been homeless and drug addicted and alcoholism to men in very powerful, you know, um, positions, careers, you know, financially from, from very, you know, disadvantaged to very wealthy to no education to well-educated. It's a, it's a cross-section. And I think for men, we, we've learned, you know, I, my partner, Fred, and I, when we ran the group, we learned very early on that we had to address the myths that are out there because um, we realized how impactful they are and how we still pay attention to these myths that are, are circulated or perpetuated. Um, and some of those are, you know, which certainly would stop a man from coming forward. We don't hear this for women, but if a man has been sexually abused, he's most likely going to go on and sexually abuse others. Now, we don't talk about that for women, but we certainly perpetuate that myth that that occurs. So, hence, men are afraid then because they think, if I come forward and I seek treatment, I'm going to be perceived that I will also be an abuser. Absolutely. And I think even for, you know, the men, I've heard this many times, even them believing that. And so not trusting themselves because there's, there's this, you know, I know I have been abused and so maybe I will abuse others when you know that has never been something that they've done or or thought about doing but this this overarching belief that that's what i'm going to, to turn into and you know the tragedy of that mm-hmm. that men have for fear you know not bonded with their children um for fear you know not based on anything internal uh, of themselves but just this distorted overarching um false uh, statement that is very oppressive to to healing and to you know when, when we talk about that there's another fallout right so we have somebody that was personally directed who then 
you know, that compromises their relationships with others, their other, you know, other family members. I think for men, there's also a belief that men are not supposed to be the victims. They're supposed to be strong. So there's a level of shame, I think, for men involved that somehow um, they should have been able to stop it. Um, men aren't supposed to cry, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, suck it up, get on with it. Um, yeah, those are some of them. There's a few other myths, but those are, those are big ones that are often perpetuated. If it was a female, you were supposed to have liked it. And so, you know, that pressure, again, you've got society saying, lucky you. Um, and when that's not your experience, you don't feel lucky. It didn't feel good and it didn't feel safe and it didn't feel consensual. And it, I think that can lead to another level of confusion um, around intimacy and sexuality. Let's talk about um, intimacy because I think that, uh, uh, you know, as you and I know how much it affects things. Um, so in reference to what we know, and you tell me, you know, trust obviously is the first thing that gets breached when, when someone has been um, assaulted. And I think that people don't always understand, right? I think we okay. tend to think of the physical aspect, but as we know, often it's by, you know, the breach of that boundary is by often somebody that we know, right? And that we trust. So often it's the betrayal, right? It's this person who said they loved me or showed me that they cared about me or, you know, was my family member. Um, and I did love them. And, and then there's this breach of that. There's a taking advantage and manipulation of that. So I think when we talk about trust, um, you know, I think that's an, an even greater impact is just how can I trust again when this person that I cared about or loved um, took advantage of me like that and me and my sense of self or my sense of worth was, was really not taken into consideration whatsoever. And you take that in the world, right? Whether it's at work, whether it's at friendships, whether it's with a partner, even a child, you know, you, you take that sense of self with you, which gets disrupted when there's, um, you know, trauma, like we're talking about it. So, and you know, when you talk a little bit about um, a flashback or a triggers for people that may or may not know what that means, I think, you know, what, what could happen to someone, let's say, um, I'm, I'm a survivor and I'm working with you, Sue. Um, and let's say you trigger me, how might it play out potentially at work if I'm a supervisor or a peer? Well, I think what it, what a trigger is, is simply something reminding you of a past experience, right? So a trigger, we tend to use it in a negative way, but a trigger is also, you know, if I, yeah, I was going to say, if I think back, you know, if I smell chicken noodle soup, sometimes I remember eating chicken noodle soup, watching the Flintstones at lunchtime at school. And it's like a pleasant <laughs> memory. But are, you know, they, so th that's a, a, a positive. But, you know, what often we're referring to is it reminds you of a, a time and place that, that wasn't, um, you didn't feel safe, you didn't feel in control, you were being hurt. So often people can be triggered, you know, and, and often the person... If, if you're my boss and you're triggering me, you may not be aware of it. More likely you're not, but it's reminding me of a feeling that I had 
where maybe I wasn't in control or I was powerless or helpless. And so maybe when I was, you know, younger, I couldn't do anything. And now, you know, in, in my young adulthood, I've decided no one's ever going to take advantage of me again. So maybe I'm very defensive. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm very reactive. Maybe I'm very argumentative. Or, you know, I've learned that it's not safe for me to speak up. So I say nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not agreeing with what's happening. I'm not understanding it. Um, but I'm, I don't feel safe enough within myself for fear of how that may, that person may respond back to me. And so we can be stuck, you know, logically we may know my boss is okay, but you know, that trauma part of us, that traumatized part of us will often stay stuck and not able to move past those earlier experiences of not feeling safe or in control or empowered. So really important for people to know, right? Like that sometimes um, people may be reacting and it may not be really based on your actions other than they have a, a, you know, I I call it the record player that's playing over and over again based on something because they've been put back into a past experience that was like less than positive for them. So tell, tell, uh, tell the listeners what kind of things that you do to help people deal with trauma. Like what is it that you do with them to help them deal with the traumas or feeling unsafe and things like that? What kind of things do you do? Well, we always talk about stabilization. So it's always, it's really not about, you know, if somebody was thinking about going to do some work around their earlier traumas, um, I think there's a time and a place. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes we wait, you know, longer once than maybe we think we should, but it's hard work and there has to be some safety in your life. So if there's a lot of turmoil or changes, that's probably not the time to do trauma work. Um, Often people will say it's when they're settled and starting to feel safe, but some of the earlier stuff arises and that surprises them. You know, I'm feeling better about my life now. Why are these things coming up? And I think it's because we now have the ability to process it. So we talk about, you know, what are you doing to take care of yourself, right? What are you doing to manage your symptoms of maybe anxiety, you know, feeling overwhelmed, feeling stressed. What are you doing? We talk about breathing. We talk about our body. You know, we talk about mindfulness, reframing our default thinking. You know, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's really just about being really aware of what my, my pattern of thinking is. Am I just assuming, you know, that that interaction Um, that you are, you know, not going to be there for me. And just being aware before I respond or react that I've really thought about what's happening and do I have other possible interpretations of what's happening. Mm -hmm. So those are all along the the beginning stages of the work. Um, And then really, you know, for a lot of times, interestingly, I, I found, I have found personally working with men that sometimes just being able to speak it out loud has been very helpful. Something that they've carried, you know, so deeply within themselves as a secret for so long, just speaking it out loud can, can begin to alleviate some of that shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And to to some degree, all of us, I think just having a safe space to say it out loud, but we do it very carefully. Um, We do it in bits um, because often, you know, there's grief you know, that arises, this loss of, 
um, you know, childhood experiences, the hurts that was created, the loss, you know, of developing healthy relationships with others sometimes can be impacted. So I think it's, it's really, yeah, you know, expanding on, on their strengths and capabilities and what's going, what are you doing now in the present before we start? Let's unpack a little bit. Um, and challenging, you know, sometimes as a child, if I've been not treated well, I will default um, to believing it had something to do with me. So part of the work is really let's, as adults, really look back at that objectively and really understand what was going on and really how was that your fault and what could you have done differently? Probably nothing because you were a child, even up to teenage years, right? Like we really don't have a lot of control. You know, we, we were raised to listen to adults, defer to adults, you know, and that's specifically sexual abuse that I'm talking about right now. But Yeah. So, I'm just curious, right, for people that maybe are listening and thinking, you know, I have young children, right, and I'm uncomfortable talking about this stuff or whatever. What kind of things would you say as a psychotherapist that they should consider when, you know, we don't want to obviously worry our children, but we want to equip them with certain things. So what kind of things would you suggest to parents that might come or um, want to chat about how they, sh- they should approach the subject with children? Well, I think you can model, you know, healthy boundaries, right? Respect. So if your child wants to get, you know, changed in the bathroom with your brother or sister joining them, you know, really, really assisting with setting up boundaries and privacy. I think being really aware of what we're modeling. So, you know, if I want, you know, again, if I'm walking in on my child and at some point they're uncomfortable with that instead of us, no, it's fine, I'm your mother or I'm your father, you know, really respecting that, giving them choices and just modeling, respecting their choices. I think that helps develop. I have a sense of self, right? I'm, I'm, there's value in my parents honoring what I'm saying. And of course the choices are here to, you know, do you want to wear the blue top or the red top? That change, but I think if we can start as young as possible, we develop a child that is aware that they have a sense of agency in the world. I think you know as much as a parent can to talk about body part, mm-hmm. right? Appropriately, you know, with the appropriate term. Use the pro- you use the proper words versus pet words for your private parts, so that children understand exactly what you mean. Because I think a lot of times people are intimidated themselves to say the words, so they, they skirt around it. But to know that that's actually part of um, educating your child as much as possible, along with the boundaries that this is your body and these are your parts. And to know that, you know, to say to someone that you don't touch me in, in certain parts of my body, but to use the real language. Yeah, and you know, these, these are... You know, it, it's it's certainly not about like you said. We don't want to create a, a world for our children where it's not safe. They don't feel safe. But but I think if we can do it in just natural opportunities, right? Um, and our kids will have questions. They will hear things. And how do we have those answers? Um, and ideally, you know, we want to be listening to our children. We want to take the time to to have conversations about life in general. Because I think if our children know you know, 
I guess ideally too, you know, if, if you're ever uncomfortable, you come and tell me, mm -hmm. you know, um, there are a lot of resources online for parents to, to access, you know, depending how comfortable you are. But I think if your child trusts you and feels that they can go to you and that you're available, you know, that may help in maintaining some communication when maybe, you know, your child has a concern or something feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So again, we go back to that openness and saying to your children that, you know, we can talk about anything, but not to overwhelm them based on think of how old they are and how you're sharing with them. Yeah. You know, and not to not to make them think that the world is a place to be feared, but just that they have the they have the skills and if they don't know to ask. And what the old are, I think I always remember, you know, there was a game that I, I did with my children, the what if that started very, you know, what would you do if, if you got off the bus and I wasn't here? And instead of me telling them what the answers are, you know, what what would you do? And we had to sit and try to figure it out. And it was done kind of in a light way mm -hmm. um, with some help. If we were stuck, what would you, you know, if you went to that neighbor? And, and I think that just also, you know, teaches our children to, to trust their thinking, to practice that kind of processing. And I mm -hmm. think, yeah, you know, maintaining a time where you can sit and just talk about how things are going and what's coming up in the news and what did you learn at school? And um, the other one that, you know, I personally have been, I feel pretty strongly about is, uh, I think there was a generation where, you know, go hug Uncle Mike or kiss your grandmother or, or, and we would never let our child not do that because we were embarrassed. And I think there's something about really allowing our child to decide. Mm -hmm. You know what, it's, I think there maybe was generational, but kind of forcing us as kids to go hug and kiss everybody whether we wanted to or not and, and maybe there's other ways of maintaining a respectful uh, greeting that that don't include just being mindful if a child doesn't want to like being aware of our own maybe I'm embarrassed because my child's not listening but just being right. aware of that maybe there's a way I can support my child so you know Sue I just think about um you know, how trauma could impact people and they truly believe that I'm, I'm a depressed, you know, the I am's, right? When we think of this, the symptoms that develop because of trauma, uh, when people have sought help, would you say that, that those assumptions or those symptoms that they take on as being characteristics get cleared up? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think people don't often correlate their symptoms right back to the trauma. So I think even being able to link that, you know, clarifies a little bit and organizes a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm not destined to feel this way. And, and, you know, sometimes other health professionals will say, you've just got to live with this depression. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. take these pills. And not to say that there's not a time and a place that that's appropriate or helpful, but I think, you know, having an opportunity to really understand why I started to think the way I did, why I started to not believe that there was things were going to turn out well. You know, I things weren't turning out well for me. People weren't there for me, or mm. I couldn't trust people. And really, you know, differentiating about a way of seeing the world that you just absorbed as a child because of your circumstances versus how do you remember and recognize as an adult you have the capacity 
because we have a fully developed brain now, right? We get to, to make choices for ourselves. Maybe I can begin, I don't have to default to that way of thinking, right? That, that was just an absorb. That wasn't a conscious decision of how I want to see the world. And so I, I see that frequently. People, you know, they don't feel the, the same shame that they've carried. Um, they realize there was nothing they could do. They are worthy. It wasn't their fault. And they have different patterns, different ways of seeing themselves in the world that can often alleviate symptoms of depression and anxiety. And I think that's such an important fact, right? Because... And what we know sometimes with the medical community, they may not look at the other options. They might just suggest the, you know, the um, medications with those without looking at the psychological, the emotional, or even the, you know, the implications of what may have happened. Um, and, you know, what we're realizing now is what, what do most of us use? We use our brains and we use our body in our jobs now. So obviously we're seeing a more of an increase in things around mental mental health because, um, you know, before we would break a limb or um, get a strained muscle, but now what are we doing? We're overworking um, our brains and we need to start to learn how to relax it. Or even if there's things been things from the past that maybe um, hasn't affected us before, but now, like you said, when I feel safe, it comes up more. I, you know, I know we often joke around because when people come to see us and, you know, we have to make sure that nobody runs into each other. But I know over the years, we've, we hope that uh, uh, when people come to see us in our practice, that people will be able to sit in the same room like they do their dentists, their doctors, you know, their lawyers. We're all it's it's the more that we learn to accept that um, our brain and our body is the the same thing. And I know we're we're coming along, but we're ways off that hopefully with time we'd be able to embrace uh, mental mental health to mental well-being as being a real part of our yeah. lives. So, yeah. um, Sue, so I'm sure everyone listening would love to reach out if they wanted to um, get some support. Uh, so why don't you tell people where they can reach you if they're wanting to, to have a chit-chat or, or maybe book some time with you? Um, so I'm going to have a private practice. Um, that I've just on a full-time basis. Probably one of the best ways to go to my website, which is really just www.sueandbrenner.com. And then all my and information is there. So it's S-U-E-L-Y-M-B-U-R-N-E-R. <laughs> I'm just I'm just spelling it out because I know this is a big joke with her and I because I never get her last name right. Uh, but there will also be a link with her website uh, at the bottom of the podcast. So Sue, as usual, it's lovely. We've had a, a thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. It is um, a pleasure talking to you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, you know, for everyone listening, and uh, I, I often say that. Um, we are not defined by our pain. And if anything more so with trauma, um, the symptoms may be fiercer. Um, and, but it doesn't mean that those people are ill-willed or, or weak. It just means that getting the right support for those symptoms are difficult sometimes to go forward like we talked about. And to, you know, whether you are, are a manager or a coworker or a friend, or someone in the community that may know that someone struggles with something, not to judge, but to, like Sue said, offer that compassionate, kind word or a gentle smile to, to say, is there anything I can do to help? 
and you know online there's always a lot of really good resources you have um, awesome people like sue in the community that can support you or just to you know pick up the phone and and call um many of the resources that we here have here in niagara or throughout uh, ontario or canada so again uh know that you are not defined by your pain and that being authentic is something that we all are born in the world with it. And sometimes our experiences might um, tarnish those things. But to know that once you clear that pain, whatever it is, um, the real you is there. So thanks again for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne. If you're needing more information on me, um, I'm a keynote speaker and a trainer. I can be reached at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Thanks again, Sue. We'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.